Diamond K Talk YA now presents The Kingdom of Back, Part 2 by Marie Lou. Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished a standalone book called The Kingdom of Back by Murray Lou. We did. And we also had our first guest appearance in a different podcast. Yes. We were guests on the Prince Kai Fan Pod podcast, which is hosted by Bethany Finger. And We had so much fun being guests. It was like the first time we were special guests on a show and it was super, it was exciting. It was really interesting too. This is like the nerd in me coming out, but to be part of a different podcast specifically because her process is a little bit different than ours and we got to do the fun part without the not fun part, which to me, I hate the editing. So we didn't have to worry about that or like our audio working because she was recording it all on her side. So we just got to sit back and talk. A lot. We talked so much. So her podcast, she's going through the whole Lunar Chronicles books by um, like dissecting in detail a chapter or two every week with guests, which is a really cool way to do it. A little bit different than how we did it since we did the whole thing in eight weeks or something like that. And for 15 pages of writing, we had a lot to say. <laughs> we talked for four hours. Like, I, at one point, I looked at the clock, and I was like, it is midnight, and I have to go to bed. <laughs> but it was so fun. I was curious if it would impact how we read or talk about our books now. Have you found yourself reading any differently or in any more detail since we did that? I've definitely been reading in greater detail, or just, like, trying to digest the sentences a little bit more closely, because, like... The thing I loved so much about it was because we went through it sentence by sentence. Like, you really got to, like, close read the actual text. And, like, I haven't done that since college. And it was just, like, it was super fun to, like, think about it on, like, a really small scale. And I do feel, especially the Lunar Chronicles, I feel like I devoured them. They were pretty long, Mm -hmm. especially, like, the later books. But I read them so quickly because it was so engaging and slowing down on a book like that and you really appreciated some of the like word choice and detail and Mm -hmm. some of these other things that you were getting kind of surface level from the speed that we were reading but I hadn't taken a step back to do that and um yeah it it was kind of a cool lens but I can't read that slow I'm too impatient. I know, me too. I just have to know what happens next. And I also wouldn't be able to remember like week two. I mean, I know that she has read them and like she has a process that works for her but I don't think I could slow down and like reframe every week about where I left off previously because I have enough trouble when we do half a book like I need to ask you where did we leave off last week again I do not remember and her notes were so extensive too like she put so much work into planning every episode which I appreciated just as like being a guest but I was amazed at how much work she puts into her all of her episodes. Yeah. So if you guys want to listen to our special guest episode, um, you can follow the Prince Kai Fan Pod on everywhere you get your podcasts. So Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And we appear on episode 48. And we'll have her as a guest for one of our super fan Sundays eventually. For sure. 
Okay, so speaking about detailed notes and stopping at different places, where did this half start again? I always forget when we're halfway through how far back I need to frame it in my mind. So we were, where were we? We left off at the chapter called Who Conducts the Orchestra? And right after this, the Mozart children go to the opera for the first time. Oh, yeah. And actually, I I loved this scene because I am like, kind of an opera junkie like I love opera so much I have like such good memories of my grandma taking me every Sunday to the opera in Pittsburgh and I just it like holds a very special place in my heart and I loved when he is making fun of like the headdresses that the women are wearing mm-hmm. and do you remember when he calls them Papageno? yep so that's a character in one of Mozart's operas in the magic flute oh and so I was like, oh, that's like such a cute little Easter egg that she put in there. And then when they're at that opera, he says that he's going to create the hardest aria ever, which he does and is also in the magic flute. So after I read that, I like spent the rest of the book trying to find little Easter eggs. Did you find a lot more? Um, no, I just like the, um, like how the queen was named the queen of the night. Mm-hmm. That was like a big one. I couldn't really find many others, but I, I just thought it was fun that she like, put that little detail in there this is one way in which we are not aligned I think we have a lot of similarities but I think I've been to one opera in my life and I remember I went with an ex-boyfriend and afterwards we were like I don't know if we're really opera people (laughs) (laughs) but it was I mean like I'm glad I did it and I would do it again but I definitely won't do it regularly but it it's such a production I, I love seeing like shows but they're opera takes it to like a whole nother level or at least the one I saw I feel like oh it's just it's almost like over the top it's that's why I like it (laughs) incredible yeah probably like my best opera experience was in Verona my friend Paolo and I saw Aida at the very famous opera theater in Verona like the big outdoor amphitheater and it was so cool because it was outdoors and like when it started it was like twilight and then As it got darker and darker, like, the whole stage was lit up. And the opera was, like, I think it was five and a half hours. Oh, wow. (laughs) But we were just, like, sitting on these cold, hard stone seats. And we were just, both of us, just, like, riveted for the entire five and a half hours. Like, it was the shortest five and a half hours of my life because we were just, like, so absorbed in this show. And it was so cool. I will never forget it. I feel like James is really into music and things. I feel like it would actually be a much different experience to go with someone else who was really into it, like either you or James or something. Like, I feel like I need more context for it mm. almost to like dive into it. Be- but I do love storytelling and I love art. I think there's a lot of things I would appreciate. I just probably needed to give it a better, a better chance. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, especially like most, a lot of Mozart's operas are like actually really funny if you listen to it. I mean, they're horribly sexist. All operas like horribly sexist. And there's like, <laughs> A whole thing about like how can you be a feminist and also like opera but I'm okay liking problematic things so <laughs> I am getting over that but like a lot of his stuff has like really good humor to it and I think people find unexpected like I think a lot of people think of opera as like this big melodramatic the girl dies at the end saga and but like some of it's really playful and fun I think I'd also be more open to anything Mozart after reading this book. I'm like so intrigued by him and his family and I really, I mean, I knew some of the basics, I guess, but I hadn't ever really studied him or spent much time even in the classical music world. Even when I played piano, I feel like I 
didn't play classical piano. Really? I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I mean, I must have, but I, like, don't have any memory of it, really. I don't know. It's just so... I, I feel like I need to revisit it for sure. Also, my memory is terrible, as you and the audience all know. <laughs> well, I think I'm weird because I only like to play classical piano. Like, even when I was younger, like, I've played piano for, like, 18 years. And I actually have a piano now, which is very exciting. But, like, I feel like every time I say play piano, people are like, oh, can you play you know, like the soundtrack from Game of Thrones or like they always want you to play like popular songs. Mm -hmm. And I have like no interest in that. I like my Mozart and my Chopin and my Bach. I'm much more into the classics than anything else. And I think I actually probably liked playing that more because I was really into the theory of music. Mm. So I remember like doing jazz stuff and not liking that it wasn't like counted perfect. I don't (laughs) know. Like I liked the rules and following the rules. I get it. I... It's just has been fun reading this book for me because I have been very into music from a very young age and it was just, it's nice to see the stuff you're passionate about like reflected on the page and just to like be in this world was really fun. There are so many things I loved about this book. One is that a lot of the things we talked about last week, like looking at a real woman in mm-hmm. history who was largely ignored even though she was, or largely forgotten even though she was just as talented or you know also a musical prodigy um I love like the fantasy and real elements back and forth and some of the writing like the wording and the word choice and the like emotions that are captured I think were done beautifully Mm -hmm. and I know this is like part of of the story or whatever but I felt like there was too much or I got like bored of people getting sick a lot oh my god I was gonna say the same thing and just the way time passed because what like 10 years ended up passing, but I kept, like, not realizing it, and then, like, they'd mention ages again, and I'd be like, whoa, like, what? Has nothing happened? Or has a ton happened that we didn't see? And part of me just, like, wanted more action, which is kind of weird. (laughs) I don't know. I, like, I appreciated the sickness part, because I know that was probably very accurate and real and, Mm -hmm. like, all of that, but part of me was, like, especially the real life parts felt really slow. I totally agree. The real life parts... And and even the fantasy parts felt, like, repetitive to me. And I think you're totally right with, like, the sickness part because everyone just keeps getting sick. And it's like, then they get smallpox, then Mozart gets a cough. And that, like, it was just one after the other. And I was like, okay, that's a lot of people getting sick. Can we we do something else? But um, I think maybe part of my, the way I feel that way is because just of the other books that we've read Mm -hmm. by Marie Lu. And I think I just associate her with these, like, fast-paced plots and these, you know, really intense plot lines where these all, there are all these twists and turns coming at you. And, like, her stories are normally so plot-driven and so action-packed that this was almost jarring for me to, to read this and know she wrote it. But I wonder if we would have felt the same way if, if it had been written by someone else, like if we didn't know Marie Lou wrote it. That's fair. I think this is hard. Anytime you have like two points of view or like even those like historic novels where you like go back in time and forward in time, I tend to pick one point of view or one character or one time period that I'm more interested in. So when you go back and forth, sometimes I get bored in the one that I'm less interested Mm -hmm. in. And I think for this one, I wanted more of the fantasy world. I felt like every time we went into it, we did a lot of like setup and then we were like only there for a few minutes. Yeah. 
I actually wanted less of it because I felt like the stuff that was happening in the fairy world was a little simplistic in a way. And and I felt like this stuff happening in the real world was kind of weightier in a way and, and kind of meatier, maybe because it was happening in the real world versus the fantasy world. But um, as a whole, I would say, I feel like this book definitely reads at a younger reading age or for, for a, mm-hmm. a younger audience. I would say this would be a great middle school early middle school, like sixth, seventh grade reading level. Whereas I think a lot of the other books that we read that are still young adult seem to be written for, you know, teenagers. I wonder how much of that too is when we read these like epic stories with multiple installments, like by nature of that, you have like more characters and more world built, Mm -hmm. like things just get bigger because you have more pages to make things bigger. And I honestly, I haven't read a standalone YA book in a while because most of the YA I read now is for our podcast. And part of me also was curious about that side. Like I didn't necessarily need this to go longer. I think Mm -hmm. my issue with the fantasy world was actually the same as yours, but how I responded to that was I wanted to be there longer to give it more meat Oh, okay. But I, I think I agree. Like, it felt... Too simplistic. We didn't go... Like, I wanted to go de- I wanted to go deeper in it. Yeah, even just, like, the parts where it's like, okay, if you pour water over my feet, my feet are free, like with the queen. Or if you crush up this flower, it'll melt the locks. Like, it was just... Like, the problem solving wasn't very unique or challenging. So it kind of felt like the problems in the fairy world got fixed very fast. Um, I, I did like the twist that Hyacinth was bad news, even though we called that from day one. <laughs> yeah, but I I was still a little bit surprised. I suspected that who he was framing was bad was not as bad as he thought, but I did not realize that the queen was the old queen. No. The, the actual connections to their original story, I didn't make that comparison. I thought maybe he was lying, but I didn't really put into place that he was like trying to get to the princess to eat her or to be to do something bad to her. Well, I th- I didn't get that um Nanarol and Mozart were the prince and princess in the story who were yeah. like spirited away. Like that was a weird twist as well. Well, I thought that was interesting because I can't remember if you mentioned this or if I had just researched it, but in The Kingdom of Back the little bit that has been shared or that I read or that one of us mentioned or something, they talked about how they thought of themselves as king and queen of the kingdom of Beck. And I thought that was kind of cool to be like, oh, there actually are royal... Like, I didn't think about it or remember it until that was revealed, but I thought it was kind of a cool Mm -hmm. connection to, again, how it was shared in our world about what the kingdom of Beck meant to the two of them. Is that what you did more research on this week? No. So this week... Okay. <laughs> do you want me to tell you what I did? Yeah. I crowdsourced my research. Love it. So we talked a little bit last time about, like, the imagination piece. And I think this is, again, me wanting to go no more... De- like, I, I, I think it's so interesting what kids especially come up with. Like, their minds are fascinating in the way they either cope mm-hmm. or, like, create and all this stuff. So the imagination world, imagination games, imaginary people was like really interesting to me. So I actually put something in my Instagram story earlier this week, which is very new for me to do Instagram stories, asking people (laughs) if they had had an imaginary friend growing up. And then I followed up with everyone who said yes. And I got some, some really great stories. And then I did a little bit of research on the psychology of it. Oh, I can't wait. But first you did not have an imaginary friend, did you? I didn't, I did not know. Did your sister by chance? No, but my cousin did. Okay. 
And I should clarify, my two younger cousins were like raised almost as if they were my siblings. Love it. So first of all, statistically, I read like 65% or two thirds of children under the age of seven report having an, an imaginary friend at some point. But my statistics, it was like a third of my friends who responded to the survey had an Whoa. imaginary friend as a child, which I thought was kind of interesting. Were they only children? No, it was actually a pretty good mix. So first of all, I did have an imaginary friend. Oh, you did? Okay. Yes. What was her name? Um, he was a frog. <laughs> <laughs> and his name was Freddy. He was Freddy the Frog. But So I, I like know this, and I've heard stories about it my whole life, but I did reach out to my parents, and I asked them like when they first learned about Freddy and what they thought. And so let me just pull up their quotes first. <laughs> oh my god, I love this. Um, so first of all, my mom said, I read up immensely on imaginary friends because of Freddie, and I found out that it was usually common and extremely smart children, so I went with it and enjoyed your friend. And my dad said, I'm not sure exactly when or how Freddie came up, but we thought it was cute and didn't think it indicated any abnormal psychological condition until much later. (laughs) (laughs) But they said that I would just, I, like, I just, they can't remember exactly when, they think I was around three years old, so I had a little sister, but she was very young. So she wasn't like playing with me yet or anything. And I would just talk about how I was playing with Freddie or he was like hanging out and I acted like it was no big deal. So they just like went along with it. And I do remember this too. My dad, like my parents used to read me a story and sing to me before I went to sleep. And my dad would like make up stories about Freddie the Frog and like they'd tickle my back. But when he did the Freddie the Frog part, he'd like hop on my back. His hand would hop around on my back. And I like have a memory of that, but. So I was like, why was it a frog? Do you guys know why I imagined my friend as a frog? And they just said, I still ponder that every day. That was their only response. (laughs) Wow. I've never heard of an imaginary friend being anything other than another little boy or girl. Oh, really? My friends shared a lot of interesting things. So people have come up with really creative stuff. And actually, that's what they said in um, the little bit of research I did, too, that sometimes it's a person and if you're a girl it could be a girl or a boy if you're a boy it could be a, like it's not gender specific mm-hmm. sometimes it's an animal sometimes it's like something completely imaginary like a unicorn or an elf or like something you know just kind of out there okay this one was a good one one of my friends said that she had she had a real friend named sarah and then she had an imaginary friend called pretend sarah <laughs> <laughs> So that was a good one. That's actually, my co- my cousins was like that. We had a dance teacher named Maria, and her imaginary friend was Little Marie. <laughs> Love it. Okay, one of my friends had an imaginary friend that was a killer whale, or an orca. Whoa! Was that when Free Willy came out? Probably. No, she said she had to do a project on ecosystems in third grade, and she, like, read a ton about orcas when she picked the ocean and just fell in love, and she said it sang and talked to her, and it was kind of, so she's not from the U.S., she moved to the U.S. when she was around that age, and she thinks it was part of, like, if she's psychoanalyzing herself because she was, like, trying to make friends in in the new place. Yeah. one of my friends, he was six, and he said he had an imaginary friend named Johnny, who was a mix of country bumpkin and Scottish, and he, he was the scapegoat for everything, so um, he would, like, blame him whenever he got in trouble or oh something God. wasn't clean or anything like that. See, if my children had a, an imaginary friend, I would be terrified that they were seeing ghosts. Like, that's where my brain would immediately go. 
Um, I think it would depend on how they interacted with them for me. So I, I actually, let me see if I can find the actual statistic. I guess I'd be less concerned about a ghost frog or a ghost killer whale than a ghost child, though. Yeah, and it'll probably depend on, like, how creepy or adult the ghost was being to some extent. But right, right. Um, I think it was, like, 70% or something of kids will admit that their friend is pretend or imaginary. Like, that they can recognize mm. that it's not real if asked directly. Okay. And only one kid in the study, like, adamantly refused to admit that it wasn't someone. Well, that was probably a ghost then. Yeah, so there's <laughs> one kid who saw a ghost. <laughs> um, one of my friends had a imaginary friend named Baby Gonk Gonk that she invented because she, it was a monster. And she thought if she became friends with the monster... They wouldn't scare her anymore, and it was loosely based on a character from the Haunted Mansion at Disney, and she sent me a picture of this, like, creature from the Disney Haunted Mansion ride. Oh my god, that's so funny. These names are great. Um, I used to pretend I had a husband named Ricky. I really loved, liked I Love Lucy. <laughs> um, one of my friends had two pretend German shepherds named Ship and Shep, and she would also drag around two suitcases pretending they were the dogs. Oh my god, I love that. Uh, my cousin, so hers wasn't fully an imaginary friend like you might be thinking because it was an actual stuffed animal that she like gave characteristics to or whatever. She sent me a picture, it's really cute. Um, but they like wore matching Hawaiian shirts. She wouldn't let anyone touch him. She still has him to this day. Wow. Like when she would walk around with him, she would just like drag him behind her when she played, his name was Howie Gardino. He was a little monkey. And she, there's a picture of her playing soccer and she like has him tied around like a backpack. Um, she would tie his feet together with a hairband, like on her piggyback style and mm-hmm. yeah so it's just kind of fun it was a fun question to ask people I wish I could like still go to bars and meet random people and just like ask them I feel like that'd be a fun bar question to just like ask complete strangers and see what what their imaginary friends were. yeah totally I mean people would probably look at me weird but two-thirds of people had one so I think you'd get some good stories odds are yeah and then I didn't know or remember this but I guess uh did you watch Sesame Street growing up so Big Bird had an imaginary friend for a while, Mr. Snuffleupagus, the like kind of anteater looking shaggy yeah. creature. And it was like a running joke for years that Big Bird was the only one who ever interacted with or saw Mr. Snuffleupagus and like adults couldn't see him. But then I guess there was some pushback at some point that if a child had been abused, it may encourage them not to talk to adults or something, or that adults wouldn't believe them. Oh, yeah. And so they then made Mr. Snuffleupagus real. Real. Wow. That's dark. I know. I was like, that's kind of scary. And so people did used to think it was like a sign of mental illness, but that changed, I think it was like the early 1990s, so around when I was a kid and my mom was doing all that research. <laughs> and now um, I think there's a lot of reasons why people might develop imaginary friends and people usually think it's kids who are really shy or have trouble making friends or like it could be like compensating like you said thinking it's only children or, or things like that and it is more often only your oldest children hmm. I think I read that somewhere but they said it not like significant not statistically significantly so um, they also said it's more common in girls at a young age but then it evens out by like age five or six to have But there's no actual tie to any, like, schizophrenia or other mental illness. And, in fact, um, it's tied to, like, higher creativity and higher 
socialization. Let me find this exact thing. That's funny, though, because my one cousin who did have an imaginary friend, like, we always joke, and she always, like, admits that she is, like, the least creative person in the entire world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so they're better at perspective taking. So uh, taking another person's point of view, they also tend to be more imaginative, have richer and fuller vocabularies, and are better able to entertain themselves. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah, so it's actually like, it tends to be the age when kids are doing imaginary play anyways, but they do say that if you're left alone longer, like not in a bad way, not like you've been abandoned, but (laughs) again, like only children or oldest children, um, you know, maybe didn't have other kids around to play with all the time, would invent friends to like help them learn how to socialize. And they like, they'll still like fight with their imaginary friends. Like they're not always good or like even some of the stories my friends told, right? Like, oh, Megan, my sister... I was like, I didn't have an imaginary friend. I had an imaginary enemy. And she just reminded me, we, I, I might have shared this on the podcast before, but we used to always play the superhero and the princess. She was the princess. I was the superhero. And we invented this like group of monsters led by someone named Mr. Fingernail Man that we, like we knew we invented this, but there in our basement, there was like an unfinished part. And there was like a piece of that, like rubbery stuff that goes on the outside of things poking out of the door and it looked like a really long fingernail so we just like and we knew that's what it was and one day we were like oh it's Mr. Fingernail Man he's trying to get us and then (laughs) like for the like I'm still terrified to go in a basement by myself to this day (laughs) because of this like fear of Mr. Fingernail Man. That's a horrifying name for like a imaginary monster. Right? Yeah I don't know what we were thinking. Yeah that's terrifying. (laughs) Um, they, and they also said, cause a lot of, I think people who are researching this have kids who have started telling them about imaginary friends and they're like, what do I do? But in general, they say go along with it unless it's, um, really, sometimes kids will use it to like push boundaries so you can still establish boundaries. Mm-hmm. So they said, maybe you can put out a plate with imaginary food for your friend's imaginary friend, but don't like make them a whole extra plate of dinner or something like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, in general, go along with it, but don't try and take it over. So let your your child, like, dictate and, like, tell you when the friend is there and, like, communicate for them because it can become, like, a power struggle thing or it can hurt their imagination. And I've read some stories about basically parents who accidentally overstepped and then they're, like, the imaginary friend disappeared. Oh. So I guess if you're trying to get rid of it, that would work, but... Yeah, I guess it's best, it's best just to kind of let it run its course. Like, they're not going to go to college with an imaginary friend. <laughs> Yeah, most kids by the by the time they're like nine, so it, it kind of follows the same trajectory of imaginary play. So it like starts at around age three and then kind of goes down around age nine, but usually by age 13, imaginary friends have gone their own way. And they could leave for a variety of reasons and usually the kid will tell you or maybe they just stop talking about them. But Well, I thought it was like kind of poignant in this book too, how like in the actual book, Nanaril manages to like defeat Hyacinth and free the queen and the world kind of disappears but it's also timed with her and Mozart like growing up like Mm -hmm. by the end she's 18 and and he's 14 and the world disappears Mm -hmm. and like they couch it as like they were able to heal the world and you know restore the queen to her rightful place but it's also kind of represents the end of childhood and like the end of imagination which is sad yeah the last couple of things I wanted to share is children who had imaginary friends tend to score higher on absorption tests, which are like, they're more likely to get 
lost in a novel or something like that. But that also, I think, applied to these kids because they would get, like, absorbed by their music and their composing mm-hmm. and their practicing and things like that. And um, they're open to new ideas. They're more open to new ideas and have better social skills. So, again, um, kind of these creativity aspects, which maybe yeah. isn't true in all cases, but definitely was true for the two of them. For sure. I mean, and they were both just so such creative children. It's, like, very easy to imagine that they had this elaborate world that they created and that it was... And, like, I love how they had their manservant, like, draw maps. Like, in real yeah. life, they had their manservant, like, draw maps of this kingdom for them. Like, I love that. And, again, knowing that, like, to what extent they know it's real or not real, like, that was in some ways a frustrating part of the book for me but also kind of a good part of the book where she'd come back and she'd sort of question how real it was but then she'd go she'd go back to the kingdom of back and be like oh yeah this is real but then she'd like wake up in the morning and be like was that a dream I can't quite remember it it doesn't feel very you know I think I just got Mm -hmm. frustrated that it happened so many times I was like okay I get it but um that idea I think also fits in well with imaginary play where you know kids take an idea so far and they're like totally invested in it but then kind of to your point as they age I don't know like at what point do they start to be like no that was just a dream or that was just pretend Mm -hmm. so you asked me last week to think of imaginary play Mm -hmm. that I did growing up did you like come up what did you remember some of the ones you did too I so I kind of went off on this tangent about imaginary friends specifically um but the big one that we did too was the uh superhero and the princess and then when Aaron came around Aaron was the evil queen for some reason I think Megan (laughs) just wanted to paint her as the villain um but uh yeah fingernail man was the main person we tried to avoid but we'd like do stuff with I remember we'd always like we'd get a jump rope and like tie all these things to us so when we would go on our trek we'd like have all of our supplies and (laughs) things like that we'd always like be on these missions and and whatnot but but yeah what about you yeah, I want to hear some of your stories. So I like, I had a Zoom call with my family and I was like, we need to remember all the weird shit that we did as kids. Because <laughs> it was often me and my sister and my two younger cousins who played together a lot. And you're going to love this because I know how much you love wolves. We had this thing where we pretended to be a wolf pack. Ooh. Because like one of us read Julie of the Wolves and we Good like- Good book. Yeah, and that just started it all. I think it was my sister. But we had this elaborate world where we were wolves. And, like, my sister and I were always, like, we took turns being the alpha. Like, we had a hierarchy. My cousin Jackie was, like, solidly a beta all the time. And then we always (laughs) made our youngest cousin Jessica be, like, the omega or um, be, like, one of the puppies. But we made a den and we would go out and hunt and, like, one of us would always get shot. Oh my goodness. I wish I had played with you back then. I would have loved this. <laughs> it was actually, I, I, like, the more we were talking about it, the more I was just, I kept remembering. And I was like, wow, we really created this elaborate world where we were wolves and, like, had to survive. A lot of our games were, like, having to survive some kind of ordeal. Mm-hmm. Like the other one I remember, which this is so inappropriate. All of our games were like so inappropriate and so dark. We had this game that I used to play with my neighbors and it was called Crazy Paw. That's what we called it. Crazy Paw? Crazy Paw. Okay. And in the game, we were um, pioneers who were like on the Oregon Trail 
and we had a covered wagon and we were like going to establish some kind of settlement in the west and we had to like cross rivers and hunt and like all the stuff you do on the Oregon Trail but at the end of the game or like near the end we would always like establish our house and like settle Mm -hmm. and then there was always a snowstorm that happened and we would get trapped in our house and at some point my neighbor who played Pa, he was always the dad, at some point he would go crazy, like he would get cabin fever (laughs) and he would run around and try and kill us all with an axe and then we had to like escape crazy Pa. I love it. (laughs) This actually does remind, we used to play with my grandparents' neighbors when we were there. It's funny, like, I feel like whenever we had a boy involved in our game, there would be weapons that we didn't necessarily have when we had girls Mm. involved. I don't know if that's actually true or if it was just the guys I hung out with or what, but we'd always play Swan Princess, which doesn't really have a lot of weapons, but it would end up, like, this one neighbor and either me or my sister and then the other neighbor and the other sister. Like, we'd be trying to hide stuff and, like, attack each other. One of us would be, like, protecting a fort and the other would be trying to get the fort or, like... I don't know why. We always called it Swan Princess, but it was really nothing like the movie. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And we did tons of just teacher and house and things like that. No, but. we never played that stuff. Ours were always so crazy dark. Or um, what was the other one we did? We did, um, we really liked the Redwall books growing up and we would always pretend like we were Redwall characters and have, we would like have to de- defend our abbey against like the badger, not the badgers, the uh, foxes and like the stoats and the rats. That was a big one. I always did mermaids or dolphins in the pool. Oh, yeah. Oh, we, um, did you ever see the movie Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken? I don't think so. I haven't seen anything. (laughs) This movie was, like, my favorite movie growing up. It's based on a real story about a woman who dived horses, like, during the Great Depression, and which was an actual thing. Like, you would climb up this really high tower that was over a swimming pool, and the horse would run up the ramp, and then at the last minute, the woman had to jump on the horse, and then the horse would dive off of this huge platform into this swimming pool. And, huh. like, my sister and I were obsessed with this movie, and so we would always try and pretend to be the woman who was, like, riding the horses, but what we would do is we would wait for, like, a snowfall, and we would put our sled on top of the sliding board. Mm-hmm. And one person had to, like, stand on top of the sliding board, and the other person had to, like, run up and go down the sliding board and the sled, and the other person had to, like, jump on the sled with them before it went down. Like, we kind of basically recreated, like... How many injuries took place? Just one broken wrist. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the wolf one and Crazy Paw were, like, some of our big ones. (laughs) I did. I asked the girls if they remembered any games that we played. And I just remember Aaron goes, I remember we played the job game. And Megan and I are both like, what is the job game? And she was just like, I don't know. We all had jobs. It was imaginary. (laughs) That's just like real life. (laughs) But I do like we, but it's funny what you were saying about movies. Because I feel like we would play like house or like, like I had a workbench and Megan had a beauty parlor thing. And we would like do different things or like work on our house we had like a miniature house but we always had like a dead parent or like it would be like (laughs) an absent parent I don't know if that was like because we watched so many Disney movies and there's always a dead parent Mm -hmm. or what but like our parents were both alive and healthy and there and like none of our friends had I don't but like 
that was just like a thing we'd always have to like survive without our parents or like with only one like I I would have all my baby dolls and I'd be like a single mother or something like (laughs) (laughs) and we used to love to put on plays so we it would be a little bit more organized than just imaginary play but we would like write them and star in them and sell tickets and sell snacks and do the you know signs and artwork and all that and we had a huge costume chest we had a lot of fun with costumes that sounds like so much fun it's still if you come to my family's house sometime you will notice that we have karaoke in the basement next to a giant chest of costumes that we still pull out regularly in our family (laughs) for when we're singing karaoke you have to do it in character of course why not (laughs) and none of us can sing but that doesn't stop us your family sounds like a fun place to grow up in it's so funny, though. I might have asked you this before. I um, I was hanging out with my cousins, and one of them, like, started putting on his shoes to go outside, and I was like, oh, what are you going to go do? He's like, I don't know. I'm just going to go play. <laughs> and it just struck me that I was like, I, when was the last, like, there has to have been a last time that I played, like, just, or like, you know, just like went out and did my imaginary yeah. thing. Like, even by myself, I remember I used to like, yeah, like, wander through our backyard with like some story in yep. my head or Whenever Megan and I shared a room, we'd like, as we fell asleep, we'd like to create like a world and like be like, what are you doing oh, in your world? Yeah. Or like, what are you, like, we didn't even get out of bed, but we just like would explain what we were like imagining until Megan, Megan always ended it with, now I'm going to pretend to be a TV and turn myself off. <laughs> and then she would fall asleep like immediately. And I'd just be sitting there like, how do you do that? <laughs> but yeah, it's so funny. I don't know when that stopped. I don't know. And like, I felt very lucky too, because I grew up in Western Pennsylvania and there was like a ton of woods by my house and we were just kind of like latchkey kids and we would go and play in the woods for like most of the summer. And it was like, my mom and dad like didn't even care. We were just like, okay, we're going to go play in the woods. And they were like, all right, come back when it's dark or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just sad that kids don't do that anymore because that was like... Uh, some of like the best times as a kid was just like building dams in the river and like pretending to be in a war with the neighborhood kids and I also this is probably early signs I was an engineer I'd always try and like build random things out of other random things like I remember I took down my swing and I tied a beach chair to it Hmm. like one of those little like things that you fold out on the beach and so that I could swing in more comfort as well (laughs) as my thoughts I had like the two strings tied to this and I'd always like be like taking things apart or putting things together. But yeah, we'd, we'd just want, we'd like leave in the morning mm-hmm. and just entertain ourselves until we got hungry. Yep. Go back out until dusk. Yeah. Yeah. Those were the days. Um, I did a little bit of research into other women composers who acquired fame Ooh. during their life because the one thing I really liked um, about the second half was we have that moment where Mozart's asked to compose a dozen sonatas or something for some guy, and mm-hmm. he doesn't think he can do it in time because it's like a lot of music. So Nanarol helps him. So she, or her father like takes some of her sonatas that she wrote and like puts them in the book, and she's devastated because she's like, "This is my work, and I'm never going to get credit for it." And like my brother is taking my work. And then I liked how at the end, her father gets another request to have Mozart write like an opera or something. And Mm -hmm. he's like, I know he can't do this in time to finish it. So like he flat out asks her to help him again, which was like the only admission that her father kind of knows that she has this talent for composition. It was so heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh, it's so sad. But I like at the end when Mozart says 
that he just signs their last name. He just wrote Mozart. I did love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to kind of like give her the credit that was deserved. That was another, and this always frustrates me in books, even though I feel like it has to move the plot, but like the fact that they weren't having these conversations sooner, like I was so glad when her and Mozart, when they finally did have that like moment on the couch or or Mm -hmm. when he was in bed or whatever and he acknowledged it and then shared that piece that he only put his last name, only put their last name to represent both of them. But man, it was driving me crazy. I was like, just ask them or say something. (laughs) I know, like, I really wanted her to stand up for herself, but, like, I get why she couldn't, or didn't feel like she could. Um, she also, in real life, Nanrol does marry Johan, the boy in the book. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because I looked up who her spouse was, and it's it's him. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, okay, so I researched some women musicians who were famous during their time. They all have the same thing in common where, like, they defied what women could and could not compose, or even just the fact that they were composing was, like, very unusual for women during the time because they often didn't have the same opportunities as, you know, their male Mm -hmm. counterparts. Um, So the first one is Francesca Caccini. She was born in 1587 in Florence, and she had some musical training from her father at an early age. This is kind of cool. She performs with her family in an ensemble and it was called Le Donne di Giulio Romano. So the women of <laughs> Giulio Romano. <laughs> um, it was her, her sister, her parents, and um, her half-brother Pompeo. Okay. So they were kind of like... The original Partridge family. The Trap family. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so eventually they broke up when her sister got married. <laughs> the band broke up. But then Francesca served the Medici court as a teacher and chamber singer, rehearsal coach, and composer of both chamber and stage music until 1627. By 1614, she was the court's most highly paid musician. Good for her. That's awesome. I know. She was also um, the first woman to write an opera, which was called La Liberazione di Ruggiero, and I love this. She performed it for the visiting crown prince of Poland, and he was so inspired when he heard this opera that he ran back to Poland and he created his own opera house, and he invited Francesca to provide the first works for it. That's awesome. I know. I love that. Did she ever marry, or did she stay single through her, or did she, like, find someone who supported her musical career? Yes, she was married. So she had one husband with whom she had a daughter, and he died... And then she very quickly arranged to marry again, and she had a son with him. I'm just always curious, because like you said, her sister stopped performing when she got married, and Nanerol ultimately got married and didn't pursue music. I wonder how much, if you're able to stay single, if it allows you to have a longer career. Yeah, so they did say, as the wife of a nobleman, she did decline at least one request to perform, which was in Parma. Um, once she was widowed, she immediately tried to return to the Medici service. Hmm. Uh, okay, the next one was Barbara Strozzi, who was born in 1619 in Venice. This is interesting. So she was an illegitimate child, but it's assumed that her biological father may have been Giulio Strozzi, who was a poet, and he was a pretty influential figure. So he um, was a member of the Incogniti, which was uh, an intellectual academy in Europe. And she was kind of 
brought up as his adoptive daughter, and he played a really big role in helping her establish her musical career. So he didn't fully acknowledge her, but he was involved in her life? Exactly, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so he opened a school for musicians where, um, like, privileged children could learn music, and he opened his own school so that his daughter, Barbara, could study there. Okay. And so she studied music all throughout her early life. When she turned 18, she took her father's last name, and she published eight volumes of her own music. Wow. So she had more music in print than any other composer, male or female, of that era. Wow. Yeah. And this is so interesting. In her first volume, she has a preface that really, like, betrays how much she was concerned about publishing her music. So it said... Being a woman, I am concerned about publishing this work. Would that it lie safely under a golden oak tree and not be endangered by swords of slander which have already been drawn to battle against it. Wow. But the thing that is really cool is that she was well known for um, secular vocal music because she um, had like a really great talent for composition but also for lyrics. And her father, they think, played a role in like teaching her that because he was a poet. Poet, yeah. She also had four illegitimate children with a Venetian nobleman who was married. Ooh, scandal. So she was like a single mom raising them and writing her music. So I should have made my T-Swift comparison right before you shared that instead of now. But I'm thinking she was good with the lyrics. She was just producing tons of music. She had it all. Love it. Um, the last one was Elizabeth Jacquet de la Guerre. So she was born in Paris in 1665. She was born into a family of musicians, and she was known as a child prodigy. So she, again, got her early music education from her father, and she performed on the harpsichord at a young age before King Louis the Fourth. Nope, 14th, X14, X, X1V, 14th. <laughs> X14. <laughs> And she, when she was a teenager, she was invited to the French court uh, where she could continue her musical education. And she married an organist. And after her marriage, she continued to teach, compose, and give concerts at home and throughout Paris to great acclaim. And she is one of the first people in France to compose sonatas. So that was like previously, uh, I guess, something that was done by Italians, but hmm. she kind of helps bring the idea uh, and the interest of composing sonatas to France. Cool. Yeah. I like that they all have slightly different personal life stories, too, because I think even though I don't know any of their names today, and so in some ways they were still lost to history, it's just, it is cool to know women in some kinds of different scenarios were able to succeed in mm. the musical field back then. Hmm. It sounds like one at least had a mu musician husband who was supportive. I would, I'm guessing since she continued to play. Yeah. One had a nobleman husband who mostly allowed her to pursue her interests, even if he thought it was just a hobby or whatever. Although she was super well paid, so maybe he needed the money. Who knows? <laughs> it's just sad that like a lot of their works didn't survive. And yeah. we don't really hear Like, I didn't know any of these women, which is super sad. Yeah. But I'm sure there were many more of them, too, who were just lost to history. But I I did enjoy this book for um, kind of exploring that part of history because you have all these famous men who produce these great works and you don't really think about the women who may have helped in some way behind the scenes or who yeah. did some of the work themselves. Yeah. Who had their work stolen. <laughs> 
Did you think of a fan name for this book? Oh my goodness, no. Well, I shouldn't be that surprised because I never have one anyways, but I totally forgot. Mm -hmm. It's way too soon. I'm not ready. Should we be Um, patrons? Oh, I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll be patrons. That works. (laughs) I have nothing better. (laughs) And we have to do a ranking too, or like rate the series. Out of how many sonatas? How many sonatas? Um, (laughs) Easy for me to say. Should we do out of five? Well... She did six, right? Oh, she did do six. Yeah. Let's do out of six. I'm going to give it a four. I think I would give it a four as well. Just because I think the reading level was a little bit um, just for a younger audience. And so I think that contributed to to it being a little bit less complex than I would have liked. But I did love the writing style. But to your point, I love seeing this kind of other side of Marie Lu. And I Mm -hmm. would still read anything else she produces. So I mean, obviously, yeah. Her books are like... (laughs) Pre-ordered and... Yeah. Yeah read compulsively yeah um but it was it was a very different type of book from her which I which I also kind of like really love like I love that she's not just one note you know like this was a big change for her and I think the writing style was beautiful and I and I love I love that she did slow down a little bit and get to like focus on creating like really beautiful language in this I feel like because this is so different from her other writing, it stands out to me. But then also when you think about her other series, idea-wise, they're all very yeah, different. So true. But you're right, like kind of the style is very similar. And the other thing I loved about this book, I'm just so glad to have it on my shelves. I think the cover is so cool. Mm-hmm. I love the maps inside mm-hmm. of it. And just like, like, I think it's just a fun, I'm glad to like have it in my collection, my physical collection. I agree. It's a beautiful book to have. And I loved re-exploring my own imaginary childhood games and realizing how talented I am at things now because I had an imaginary frog (laughs) back in the day. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I've been playing a lot more Mozart lately. (laughs) I will say that. Love it. Um, Okay, do you want to introduce our next book? I think it's time, but I think you should do it. So our next series, it is a series. There's There's three? three of them. Yeah, it's a trilogy. (laughs) so the trilogy we're going to read next is called the winter night trilogy um and it's by katherine arden so the first book is called the bear and the nightingale so i can read you a little bit about it it's actually kind of a long description okay at the edge of the russian wilderness winter lasts most of the year and the snowdrifts grow taller than houses this seems very similar to my pioneer imaginary world where Paul went crazy. Been there, yeah. <laughs> but Vasilisa doesn't mind. She spends the winter nights huddled around the embers of a fire with her beloved siblings, listening to her nurse's fairy tales. Above all, she loves the chilling story of Frost, the blue-eyed winter demon who appears in the frigid nights to claim unwary souls. Wise Russians fear him, her nurse says, and honor the spirits of house and yard and forest that protect their homes from evil. After Vasilisa's mother dies, her father goes to Moscow and brings home a new wife. Fiercely devout, city-bred, Vasilisa's new stepmother forbids her family from honoring the household spirits. The family acquiesces, but Vasilisa is frightened, sensing that more hinges upon their rituals than anyone knows. And indeed, crops begin to fall, evil creatures of the forest creep nearer, and misfortune stalks the village. All the while, Vasilisa's stepmother grows ever harsher in her determination to groom her rebellious stepdaughter for either marriage or confinement in a convent. Ooh and mm. ooh. <laughs> um, as danger circles, Vasilisa must defy even the people she loves and call on dangerous gifts she has long concealed. 
This in order to, to protect her family from a threat that seems to have stepped from her nurse's most frightening tales. Ooh. Interesting. I'm curious to see how the trilogy... That almost sounds like a standalone to me right now. Totally. So I'm curious to see how it, the world gets bigger, what happens next, too. But um, I'm excited. Me, too. I love retelling of fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And I love that this takes place in Russia because that's, like, different from where we usually are. I mean, we came from Vienna, and now we're going to Russia. I like the setting so far. Yeah, have we read a book set in Russia yet? Um... Ravka was kind of yeah, based on like Russia. Yeah, like the Grisha right? trilogy was like loosely based on Russia, but um, aside from that, I don't think so. Cool. Yeah, I, I love folklore. I'm you. You'd like the book I'm reading now. I think I'm just kind of started it, but it's called The Library of Legends, Ooh. and it's it's not YA, but it's this group of students in China who are in like the 1930s. They have to evacuate the university, and they're trying to transport this yeah library of legends with it. But there's like some legendary creatures in it like myth and real life are crossing and I think you'd like it I just added it to my goodreads so thank you and we're gonna read up to a halfway point um we're gonna read up to the chapter entitled the devil by candlelight for next week two weeks from now yeah it's we only read one book it feels like we don't deserve a break yet but we do (laughs) we earned it I know I feel like we should do more standalone books I kind of liked this it felt like easy in a way because it was just one book and it was like one and done I don't know I don't know I mean like sometimes I get with like four books I start to run out of things to research or if they're too similar Mm -hmm. but this one was so I feel like I could have done uh, several more weeks of research me too but agreed oh well um cool if you want to get a hold of us and tell us about your imaginary friends or the imaginary games that you used to play or your thoughts on this book you can reach us at mnktalkya at gmail.com and we're also on facebook and instagram under mnktalkya and you need to tell me a joke this week oh (laughs) i was ready to hang up on you You ready to sign off (laughs) i feel like i need to tell a poop joke because that's what the mozarts we're into but do you want to hear a poop joke absolutely nah they always stink (laughs) (laughs) um okay uh why did the toilet paper roll down the hill (laughs) i don't know to get to the bottom that was silly (laughs) (laughs) me and mozart have the same sense of humor (laughs) (laughs) what did the bottle of conditioner do to the toilet cleaned it shampooed oh that's kind of dumb those were great Mozart would approve (laughs) yeah that's the kind of stuff he used to write to his sister and cousin as an adult so cool him his mom would write to him (laughs) actually I think they were they were a little bit more like artsy than that but basically the same kind of thing that mean yours were pretty artsy (laughs) (laughs) I should start handwriting notes during quarantine but just include poop jokes in them see what people think hey you can send them to me (laughs) All right. I'll take them gladly. Anything else? Nope. Um, I think that's it. I'm excited to read this next series. Me too. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. 
For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.